rounded a third. Alfonso gets the bag for one. Alomar's relay, the triple play! Santa Maria! Oh, it's high, it is far, it is good! Maria like that, it's an A-bomb from A-Rod. Ball game over, Yankees win, the Yankees win! Batter up. Welcome back to a brand new edition of Nick's Nonfiction here with your host, Open Micer Nick Muniz. We have a double first this half month show of April, our first ever anthology and our first ever sports show. This is going to be a much more fun experience than if you remember reading the Spoon River Anthology back in elementary school. No, this is not going to be about bumbling Mississippi River riding hicks. We have a culmination of writers, baseball players, journalists, activists here commenting on the best aspects of baseball. Do you know any other sport where it's okay to pipe an organ to 30,000 fans? Who is the guy who you could have chose any instrument in the world to associate with baseball? An electric guitar even. You chose an organ. As you heard in the intro, those sounds Pipe nostalgia into people's heart. That is the most childish you will see a grown-ass man is in a baseball stadium. And nostalgia is great in small doses, and we are capturing that nostalgia. I am bottling it up and throwing it in a nice little ear present for everyone. Rather than chapters, it's going to be a different show for an anthology. It's going to be around 20 different writers' opinions. We're fielding grounders. I'm cup-checking you off the bat. Throw in a nice chaw of dipping tobacco. Steal a base. You're talking with an experienced host. I have been to the only two ballparks that matter, which is Yankee Stadium and the old Yankee Stadium. (laughs) No, I've also been to Fenway, too. That has been there since the 1920s. You could get anal hemorrhoids from sitting on those hard-ass seats just like they did in the 1920s. It's a beautiful sport that hasn't changed But we learn much more about all the other stadiums out there. I've met a kid who has been to every single MLB stadium. It's, this is in people's DNA. So we will be doing justice to every team around the country and Canada. None of that Japanese baseball though. This is an American pastime. So let us celebrate spring. It's spring, spring fever. With the crack of a bat, an oily glove, and a disappointed father in the stands. Your host has also played travel baseball. I used to pitch gas on the mound. I did end my career with a hitless season, but I've hit the cycle. I've hit two grand slams in a game. All stories for our show. Know about the author. It's an anthology, so let's jump right into it. We got Kevin Baker up first. He is an American novelist, one of the top-selling New York Times bestseller lists, yada yada. This guy knows how to write. Mr. Baker's given us all the foreplay we need for baseball. His chapter, At the Park. In his opinion, baseball is an addiction, a distracting addiction, but you need distractions throughout the marathon of life, so baseball is perfect, and like you said, nostalgic, it brings you back to your childhood. (laughs) Baseball doesn't have a higher meaning. When you're uh, picking dandelions in the outfield, you're not asking yourself, uh, where am I, why am I here, man? You're not having an existential crisis in the outfield. It might be a game of superstition. Well, we'll get there down the line. It's just a ball game. It's a like medium state of consciousness where you just zone out. It's like a mass hypnosis. 
Kevin better put it, baseball has homogenized time. You get the same feeling as a kid who his dad worked a week to buy 10-cent tickets to an old New York Dodgers game. He got the same experience for the first time walking through the arches and seeing the green field and hearing the crack of the bat as you do when you go to your home stadium. This is a timeless Americana classic. And everybody knows, except for the (laughs) neoconservatives who want to turn our country back into 1950, we all know subconsciously the past is dead, which gives baseball its luster. It's a living artifact. Baseball was always a city game. Baker was saying as a kid, he lived on the outskirts of town, and he saw the kids who lived around him were worse just because they weren't playing ball as much. Even in the smaller towns like where Baker grew up, they called it town ball because only the kids downtown played, and you could only play if you have 18 people. You got nine on each side. You need every kid in town to play this ball game. So it is really a city boy game. You need more people to play. Baker mentioned the MLB Hall of Fame is out in Cooperstown, but that's just to gratify rural America. I mean, people have been hitting balls with sticks, each other's balls with caveman bats since before time. How are we going to pretend like we created baseball? Make a museum. It's ours now. Baker grew up in Chelsea, Manhattan, so he was also playing stoop ball. I love me some stoop ball. I played this a lot growing up, and I had a big-ass hill in my front yard. Those of you who don't know stoop ball, you bounce the ball off the stoop. It's a two-man game, and the person, if they catch it in the air, that's one out, and you just keep score of the innings and all that in your head, but there's some game theory that goes into this you could angle it for a line drive into your buddy's face you could hit the corner of the step ricochet it into some big oak trees i used to have it would plinko its way down from the tree branches and the fielder could never catch it each stadium is different that's one of the beautiful things about stoop ball and baseball the first time baker saw a baseball diamond he was out on coney island he was in manhattan they literally didn't have room for baseball fields back then there were still new york tenements shit in the streets rats everywhere and it wasn't even a real field out in coney island he said it was just an empty brownstone so some building that vanished and these kids put a makeshift fenced up and turned it into their their own stadium We had some kids in my hometown who had their own home stadiums. One kid in particular, I remember, you know, a chain link fence that you could scale over. Probably, what are we saying? 10 feet. He had like three stacked up. He had a green monster in his backyard. You were a 12-year-old stepping up to bat with a wiffle ball bat in this kid's yard, and you could hear the roar of the fans. That was a beautiful thing. Like Kevin Baker here making their, in the middle of a city, field where you got a field. And this was like 1920s New York, Ellis Island, biggest immigration time in New York City. All the immigrants were seeing the kids playing what turned into stickball, so it got identified as an American sport. They were writing letters home to Yugoslavia, 30 Italian immigrants at the time, wherever, about these American kids playing their made-up sports. And this was a cool part. He was talking about there really was nowhere to play baseball. You need a lot of space. In New York City in the 1800s, cemeteries were used for Sunday afternoon picnics. Take a bite out of a hot dog and a ghost flies out. 
There really was no such thing as public parks back then. Even Central Park literally just used to be like a jungle in the middle of Manhattan. Nobody built on it because if you walk through Central Park, there's like hills and giant rocks and it's like, let's just go around it. And then they made it, ooh, this is a park now where we can arrest you for doing things. Baker said there used to be a free milk stand for poor people on the edge of Central Park. And there were just like hippie jams that would go on in the brush in the deep, deep backwoods of Central Park. As deep as you could go. I went to uh, Global Citizens. It was a concert in Central Park. And there were about 50,000 people in this lot they set up. And it was on four baseball fields. So it shows you how big a baseball field is you could fit. A large town's worth of people in there. Who'd I see? John Mayer, Stevie Wonder, and Kings of Leon. That was a good show, good show. So stadiums, of course, had to be built as stickball, town ball, the popularity rised. Crosley Field is the first recognized field out in Cincinnati, first stadium. Now every stadium is named after soap, fast food, uh, Gillette, a razor. What are we what are we doing here? Can we class it up a little bit? You've never heard of Crosley Lane or Crosleyville? That's a cool new word for a baseball stadium. And they've had to obviously refurbish the field since 1920, but in Cincinnati there's a 380 foot left field, which is where most batters are righty, so you pull the ball it goes to left field. It's harder to hit it out. Right field is only 330. And the reason it's so much shorter in right was that there was a hill that they had to build over. So even the first stadium, they were like, eh, just go around 350 feet out. And that's going to be baseball. And that's why every stadium is different. Washington's Griffith Stadium has a right angle in center field because when they were building the stadium, zoning the town, there were people that wouldn't sell their land a hundred yards or so behind home plate. So they had to angle the entire stadium around these stubborn squatters. You've heard the Brooklyn Dodgers got their name because the fans had to dodge the trolley cars to get to the stadiums. This was like a first urban stadium. You got Wrigley Field that has the ivy on the walls, the green monster at Fenway. Parks are customizable, just like the kid I was talking about in his backyard. Or Mr. Baker's neighborhood field. You gotta acknowledge the class that was put into baseball. It was a hundred years ago. It was a it was an event to get to go to a baseball game. They didn't just raffle out tickets on radio contests. Early Park's ticket box offices were designed to be like a boathouse. Like if you were going to a baseball game, you had to wear a suit. You wore your Sunday best. The sport was able to bring some class to the common man who can't afford nosebleed seats for him and his son. They it used to be like this was one of the first plate public places where you saw the high class with the low class. The Dodgers were the first to add lights to the stadium, so then first to have night games. You got people getting real drunk, fighting a little bit in the stands. And, oh man, there weren't any sports before baseball. This was like the first viral mass gatherings. Talk about lights being in Dodger Stadium. The Roman amphitheaters, the Greek amphitheaters further back, none of them ever had lights. They had to have their shows at dawn. Candles. <laughs> this probably initiated some sort of new time scale of mass human meetings after dark. It's pretty cool. Probably more accidents in the parking decks. But look at stadiums nowadays, like uh, football stadiums, because a lot of the baseball stadiums are the same. It's built for mass human processing. Like, those are the FEMA camps if anything goes down. Sorry to bring that into a light show. 
look at a European or a South American stadium. Hundreds of hundreds of thousands of people can be funneled in. They got the way to process the people learning through baseball stadiums. Dodger Stadium, few people know, is built on like this old polo grounds. For some insanely rich people, baseball was seen as a war of the classes, but rich people know no better. They get the Why are there horses in the middle of the city? You're playing a sport where there needs to be poop cleaned up at every period? That's a dumb sport. Polo? You're a Yankee. You play some baseball. Take your polo back to Argentina. Baker also bought up 27 years from the start of baseball. No black people. Jackie Robinson then was allowed on the field, and then black people were allowed in the stadiums too. So this was like, you see American society and segregation playing out in baseball. It's a cool mirror. Baker wound his chapter up talking about, you know, the house that Babe built, Yankee Stadium. Babe was cranking balls deep into the bleachers, one of the first to do it. And the owner saw this is how you siphon the excitement. The home runs get people moving. In Babe's first year in 1913, he only hit eight home runs. And then by 1927, he was hitting 60 a season. Nobody does that now, but he broke the wall. He pushed the sport to another level. How did he do it? Babe was reported to have trays of beer being sent into the dugout. He was eating pig knuckles. Apparently, he was hooking up with women in the locker room between innings. And he would still hit two home runs a game. So as the game stays the same, it also changes. You got Bryce Harper now, who's hitting 550 footers. Maybe because a lot of these guys are human growth hormone steroid conduits to just turn a baseball bat into a toothpick. Baker wrapped up his on-the-field little stadium action chapter saying how by 1960, any stadium that was deemed too far outside of city limits was moved into the city. And you have now much more money to be made. Next up, we have Stefan Fatsis. He is talking about my glove. Stefan Fatsis, if you remember, hardcore listeners, a couple weeks ago, I went crazy. I found this book in my neighborhood called Word Freak, some baloney about Scrabble. Stefan Fatsis wrote this. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He's like a, a Neil Strauss. He infiltrates communities. He knows a thing or two about baseball. Stefan Fatsis, a bestselling author. One of the few things, the clutter junk he still has from his childhood that remains is his baseball glove. He says it might not be the most expensive thing I own. Guy's a New York Times bestselling author. Of course not. He says it's the most valuable thing he owns. You ever heard of, like, object permanence? It's just a fancy way to say a hippie term. Objects have memory, man. Like, when you put on your old glove, you get some weird feeling. That's what Stefan is still holding on to here. Who would have thought that the item most valued to a best-selling author is a 30-year-old hunk of leather? A Rawling collector came by to see Stefan's glove, and he said, oh yeah, you know, it's 30 years old, it's broken in all right, which is the highest compliment you can receive about your glove. I used to ask my dad to run over my glove with his car, and the Rawling guy had some tips for Stefan that he never knew. Apparently when you have the glove on, if you point your indexed finger at where the ball is coming from, that should be the perfect catch. Like, you're not supposed to do a snow cone catching it where the ball is hanging out. You want to catch it right on the friggin' meat of your hand. Softballers catch it in the net. 
that's one of the cool things about baseball. It teaches you how to be ambidextrous. People, did you ever think until you put on a baseball glove that you would be able to catch a 50-mile-per-hour rock coming at your face with your non-dominant hand? It's like some Spider-Man training or something. The Rawling guy was telling Stefan the glove has to be an extension of your hand, no different than a surgeon with his tools. Very poetic. He started pressing on the fingers of Stefan's glove, really checking out the U-curve, how he broke it in, how he catches. You could tell a lot. It's like someone's digital footprint, how they play baseball by looking at someone's glove. And Stefan always thought that your glove should be broken in to the point where it's almost round. And the Rawling guy's going, there should be a nice triangular thing from the top of the net to the thumb to the pinky. Whatever, as long as you could catch a ball. But it smelled like every other glove he'd ever seen. Leather, dirt, grass, sun in there, saliva. You spit in that thing all day long. Smells like spring, smells like anticipation. A little hope and spirit in there. And more spit. Stefan went deeper in two-hour object permanence to the history of this object. He was using this thing since 1977 when he turned 14. He was taking grounders in the dirt. He was a second baseman. So you take that glove and like it's a gigantic pitchfork or a shovel, you're about to dig a moat. You shove that thing into the ground before a ball comes. No wonder it's round. Back in the day, it was a $90 mitt on sale for 70 It was the fourth best glove that Rawling had, and it was a bit of a collector's item, the guy was saying. Back in the day, the guy was going, these are the gloves. Don't, don't write this in your book, fancy writer guy. These gloves were built to last for 40 years. Nowadays, they're made with cheap Chinese leather. Look at, like, NBA players. They're, all their sneakers are made overseas, It's <laughs> and then they sell them back to the Chinese kids. All the tassels are worn out on Stefan's glove. He's saying this object, this baseball glove, he has had a longer relationship with than anyone or anything. <laughs> Somebody's got to take this glove away from him. Stefan was uh, starting to miss grounders in his late high school baseball career. That's when he said he gave it up. But Mr. Rawling, the official guy that came through, was saying your glove's in good shape. I look at 170,000 gloves a year. Guy also said he delivered gloves directly to Jimmy Carter, the Ford family, and both Bushes, junior and senior. They're throwing the nuclear football to one another with a <laughs> with two good old American Rawling baseball mitts. While Mr. Rawling's still checking out Stefan's mitt in his apartment, he gave him a little history in 1960. Wilson jumped in the glove-making game, and they were making these gloves with, like, giant nets, wider pockets. They had multiple lines of gloves going. There was no more streamline. Mickey Mantle, first baseman, apparently used to use his own experimental designs. You can see now there's the catcher mitts, a normal... There, I think there's a third baseman's mitt as well. I had a first baseman's mitt. It looks like a totally different sports mitt. It looks like a cricket glove. They said Babe Ruth would slip on any mitt from the dugout and start catching. In like the 1950s, they had, um, it was like those weird individually fingered gloves. It didn't even, it looked like a giant's glove. And Babe Ruth was taking, it's probably back then, 80 mile per hour fastballs breaking his fingers from it. Mr. Rawling was saying that they would make six gloves at a time for A-Rod. People nowadays just like new leather, whereas people back then wanted... Dwight Evans was one of the last players to use the same glove throughout his entire career. 
That's wild. You'd never see any sort of sports player doing anything remotely close to that now because it's just about selling merch. One of the biggest receivable awards in baseball is the Golden Glove. It's named after the most important, maybe the most important tool in the game of baseball. Every single player would have broken hands if they didn't have this tool. The Rawling guy hooked Stefan up with um, one of his favorite Nationals players who was retired, so they have a catch at Nationals Park one day, and the guy, the old player, convinced Stefan to give up his glove to be re-refurbished. Yeah, that's definitely not redundant. Re-refurbished by Rawling. And of course, he was very hesitant at first, the deep warning pocket he's always known to love, but he gave it away for a month he had separation anxiety his mitt is somewhere in the mail and when it came back it smelt like brand new leather and the core of the mitt was the same the dirty part where your palm goes into day after day it was the same for stefan but they replaced the entire exterior of the mitt and since then he's always been disappointed and panicked he probably loses sleep over the fact that he sent his glove back not a happy ending to stefan's story but he finally took the glove off of his wall, which his wife was happy about. Stefan finished saying he started taking the glove out because a glove, like life, like all these chapters have a corny ending, is like a baseball mitt. It's never broken in enough. Your glove, you, are in a state of constant work. Thank you, Stefan. Next up, we have Susan Perado called it my career she is a creative writer and female college athlete so a little softball action would not exist without baseball having grown up playing some pretty high level ball nowadays susan will go to a few cardinals games a year she loves to watch the mass interactions and the slow pace of the game which she said of course gives haters to the sport of baseball but everybody has haters not a very in-depth analysis And she goes on to, of course, you know, if you're a man, you don't say every other sentence as a man. She goes, being a woman, age is always on my mind. It's cool how a stadium of mostly older people is entertained by a group of young lads on the field. It's every sport. What does that have to be with you being a woman? In the 1990s, Judy Curteau, she was talking about, played college baseball and was the first woman coach out in Colorado. Susan played baseball and said the game changes at 12 when the ball size changes. That must be a softball thing because you play with the same baseball, but you change. You go to a 60-foot mound and 90-foot bases. It's a totally different game. She said softball is more technical because you have less field to work with. You got to work a little bit more with your bunts and switching the field, a little hit placement. But then when you go to a bigger sport like baseball, it has more variables than from the mound alone the way a lot of people don't know this you look at a field and you always go oh that's a baseball diamond if there's no mound if there's no hump of dirt or even if you just see a circle spray painted around the pitcher's mound that's a softball field baseball fields have a mound you have like a downwards angle when you're pitching and you could push off of the mound like you go to every single baseball field people just kick in and dig into the mound so you could like put the side of your foot on the rubber that's definitely not cheating. Everybody does it. I mentioned before my hit list season. That was when we moved up to the bigger field. I think like my second season on the big field. That's when the kids start throwing junk. 
since the mound is further too, there's much more room for the ball to sink or slide or knuckle or efer or whatever. You're just dealing with fastballs. Like they say in baseball, one of the hardest things to do is hit a major league pitcher's pitch. Even if, like, if it's a fastball, you could time it right. Just start swinging earlier. But when you got balls coming from every single direction, it's a different game. The hardest thing you face as a pitcher on a little league field is some freak of birth who's like a six foot tall kid throwing 80 miles per hour on a little league field, which they say equates to a 100 mile per hour pitch. Luckily, I was still pitching, so I was able to have a designated hitter. Almost had a three-pitch inning once, but the uh, coach on the other team made the third batter take a pitch. He took it away from me. It's Little League, bro. Calm down. Susan did go out at the end. She did acknowledge how uh, I was saying it's hardest to hit a baseball in basically any sport. So that says something about the pitcher, and Susan directly said, maybe there is something to the old adage, you throw like a girl. Look at in softball, why would they not pitch overhand? You got a fucking granny throw it? These MLB pitchers, like most men can't do it. It's a freak of nature thing. They turn their arm into a slingshot, into a whip. If I push into my right elbow, it hurts, bro. You majority of pitchers get Lou Gehrig. <laughs> no, that's like a central nervous system disease. A lot of pitchers get tennis elbow I think I feel it prematurely just from six years of pitching as hard as I could you gotta have the top care that's why we're going and picking up Dominican kids to blow out their arm also cool point to end it a man's center of gravity is his chest whereas a woman's is in her hips that's why their pitch coming from below they could put a little bit more force into it whereas a man you got your top heavy and you're coming down the mound you're putting every ounce of your humanity into this tiny cork ball it's a lot of freaking kinetic energy when you got a monster that just makes a tiny bit of contact that's the danger of throwing gas and you got to throw some junk which you can't quite do as a softball pitcher. They do have some curveballs and stuff, but not the movement you're going to see from a knuckleballer. Also, go further back in time. Men invented, like, the Adelaide, the slingshot, and these throwing weapons. You, It's in our DNA to be able to fucking hurl shit at a moving squirrel. So Susan says baseball might anatomically benefit men, but it's still fun to go to the batting cages See a couple Cardinal games, she said. Thank you, Susan. Nice little nostalgia from you. Next up, we got George Plimpton, Field of Dreams. George is a journalist turned actor, and he's notorious for throwing a lot of first pitches around the country. These are some of the best videos on the internet. You could watch world leaders, lizards, trying to throw a ball, rappers. I think it's 50 Cent has the worst first pitch ever he he didn't even make it off the mound he like threw it straight into the dirt and it went to the first baseline dugout i think george bush had an atrocious one too where the catcher had to like lay out to catch a pitch internet must sees go google that right now after the show <laughs> george plimpton the actor talked his way into football first and then he got into boxing two odd sports to try to talk your way into he also, though, talked his way into the All-Star game. So apparently their All-Star game used to be like the <laughs> the golf classic where you get to choose some random celebrity to play with. They used to let 
boxers play in the all-star game that was the best weekend growing up it was like early summer you might be able to convince your parents of the elusive the once in a blue moon the double sleepover it was always on the weekend too it was friday night all-star game saturday night home run derby and during the two-day sleepover you play as much pickup baseball as humanly possible me and my buddy Boy, we had our own field of dreams, as Plimpton would say. Even up until college, this is one of the best stress-relieving things you can ever do. I am passing it on to you guys. Check your surroundings. We would take a wide-barrel aluminum bat and a shag bag of golf balls and soft-toss each other and have a little home-run derby against each other. You ever fucking ping a golf ball with an aluminum baseball bat? You could crack those puppies 800 feet. And it sounds like a bolt of thunder every time you hit it. It is the ultimate decompressant, cathartic experience. Give it a try. Plimpton, the smooth talker, said he got to play a couple games in uh, right field with the San Francisco Giants. That's back when people were buying tickets aplenty. (laughs) You bring a celebrity on the field, you're going to bring an entire new fan base as well. Unfortunately, Plimpton went back to football, and he tried to be a center. Those are like the refrigerator 400-pound strongmen that you see in football now. It's one of the least important positions. You just hike the ball. Obviously, you have to block, but you're standing there and get your nuts fondled all day by a quarterback. Maybe uh, Plimpton was hiding something, but he got, it said, untestable large amounts of brain damage and he could never play center field again so that ended his career baseball players notoriously have long careers you could play late 30s guys start retiring probably older now but in football you're lucky to make it four years a cool part that he did bring up at the end of his little blurb field of dreams was how any other sport soccer soccer especially there is no position of total waste. <laughs> like, uh, you put the shittiest kid in right field so that it looks like he's getting some play time and his parent can't yell at you. But nobody's really ever hitting balls there. This was a sport where the lanky, uncoordinated kid had a home to eat butterflies. Just better hope you're not eighth in the lineup, too. Notorious shit lineup spot. Then you're just a total waste. Babe Ruth was playing right field and was batting 600. So there you go, anything's possible. Next up, Michael Sharpio, the Southworths. This is a story rarely heard. I've never heard anything like it till I read it. Was Europeans leaving Europe to play baseball. Bill Southworth made his fishy French parents weep when he told them his dream of being an American baseball player. This was during the time of Joe DiMaggio, where he left an athlete career to enlist in World War II. (laughs) So it's during the Great War, or the Second Great War, when France has already surrendered. So his parents can't be that mad. They're already Nazis. Let me go play some baseball. There was tons of rhetoric around the sport at the time. It was... (laughs) American media has always been politicizing everything they can. Baseball was the great American sport. They defeated the Third Reich. Notoriously, after VJ Day, when we beat the Japanese, when we nuked them back a couple hundred years, baseball was selling at an all-time high until around 2000. This was making me think. I mean, World War II, of course you go and fight for your country, then fight against real evil shit. Nowadays, 
the U.S. military really does take, like, the physically strongest, most mentally disciplined of our people, turn them into cannon fodder. Imagine we had some of these supermen back on the home front. Guys would be hitting baseballs into different towns. Imagine the NFL if we weren't in a war for the past 10-plus years. (laughs) Maybe it wouldn't be dying right now. In the 1940s, the MLB was notoriously the league for everyone who wasn't cleared for active combat. So you had, um... (laughs) Coming up to bat next, we have Ricketts Ricky facing the no-hitter thrown by Murphy Measles. Billy South. Billy uh, Southworths. He went straight to St. Louis from Paris, from France, after the war, and he made a name for himself as a ball player. He died in 69 of heavy drinking when he saw the country going to war again in Vietnam. No, I thought the war was over. We play baseball, we eat, we make love. Why we go to war again? Drank himself to death at 69. Hey, as a Frenchman should go out. <laughs> Mandatory death in France, 69. Imagine seeing the horrors of war, though, and then sending your son off to go experience. This is a baseball show. For a lot of families, intergenerationally now, baseball is a good rock that people hold on to. Philip Deaver, the bat. (laughs) The bat. That's what they called me back in college, baby. This old American author, baseball, he said, would always bring him back to his childhood. There was a pastor named Casey who would just hit him pop-ups all day. So then he always loved the song, Casey at Bat. I thought that was going to turn into a molestation story. (laughs) He said, A bunch of 12-year-olds would play outside the parish. The deacon would come and just blast them and then hit him baseballs. He'd hit him some dingers in the outfield. I can't help myself. Sorry. That was always cool growing up when you were playing some pickup and the adult comes in. No, be on our team. Be on our team. It changes the entire dynamic of the game. You wonder if he's going to still pitch some soft toss or give gas to the 12 years olds. One day when Mr. Philip Deaver was playing um, with the, the church gang, he said his dad came him and physically dragged him off the field. And he saw that the pastor had his sleeves rolled up and he had some yellow dirt on his white collar piece and the dad jumped into the game and he's like tell your mother i grounded you let's play some baseball it's a game if you were playing pickup full contact football you're not gonna get a geezer to join in men of any sport want to play when you see a bunch of kids hitting a ball around moral of the story there maybe dads need a little more baseball and kids need a little less grounding imagine being (laughs) <laughs> what happens if you're the son of the coach and you act up at practice? Do you have to do wind sprints at the end, or do you get grounded? Does the dad coach then use that in his utility belt of discipline at home? Take a lap, son. Fuck you. <laughs> the child of the dad who was the baseball coach, that kid always had a down-to-earth sense of humor. Or he was some overbeaten failure 12-year-old who was on a diet of boogers who his dad thought was on the diet of an Olympian. You know, it's always one or the other. Philip the dinosaur, still talking about bats, he talked about hickory and oak bats. The point was that kids, as a kid, you can always spot the difference. We had aluminum and then composite was like the big, oh my god, you have a composite bat, can I please use it? 
It's supposed to be this pressed metal, so your ball just rockets off it. <laughs> Definitely not like corking your bat. I remember I had a bamboo bat once. Like, I took it home, I rubbed pine tar on it all night. I was hitting grounders in the backyard, getting ready to break this thing out. First at bat, I shattered it. It was one of the best feelings. got to feel the wooden crack of the bat once. But then they banned bats from the league the following year, wooden bats. Think about it, I could have splintered a kid's eye. People die in baseball, though, pretty frequently. A kid died in our town, he got hit in the heart. A line drive to the chest. He wasn't paying attention. Fucking sad. Rest in peace. Move along. Mr. Diddley Pastor, who used to play with Philip, gave him his first Louisville slugger. Told Philip, you're the best in town. Keep your mouth shut about it. Maybe he said that to every kid. <laughs> There's more to bats than you can say. Hank Aaron, he was the one caught for corking his bat. That's like the most least sly cheating of all time. You go watch that Icarus documentary. The Russians literally tunneled under the Sochi Olympic complex to be able to get dope into their blood and then fake piss into the tests. Hank Aaron wasn't thinking too far ahead. Oops, if I crack a bat, everyone can see I'm cheating and my record no longer exists. Corked bat, not the best idea. A-Rod was even more inconspicuous with his uh, steroid usage. He just shot him in his ass. There, you got the, the fungo. The long bats where, like, the center of mass is much further out, so it's like you're swinging a giant pendulum. So if you hit it on the sweet spot right in your roundhouse, the thing's going yard. Straight up battle axe. Baseball has the best lingo. Balk. That's a fun word. Who's next? J.D. Scrimmager. My outfield. He won the creative nonfiction baseball essay for writing this little bit. Bet that's a full-ride scholarship. Yo, I didn't miss one day of high school. I thought I was going to get, like, a full ride from this. I thought I was going to get some sort of recognition from the school. I got a $15 scholarship. It would have probably been, like, time efficient to play hooky one day and just make $100 at the grocery store I worked at. They gypped me. So this kid, JD, he was a high school nonfiction uh, essay he wrote in. So he was trying to be all poetic. Where did the outfield end and the cornfield begin? That's called the warning track, buddy. There's a name for it. This kid's from Illinois. He uh, joined travel baseball, and he said, You know, oh my God, this sport took me out of my hometown. I would have never been to the East Coast. I got to play in Massachusetts, Connecticut. Baseball takes a lot of kids further away from home than they would ever be able to go. And everywhere you go, no matter how small the town, how big the town certain parts of Canada you can go anywhere in Japan and you have something to talk about you can talk about baseball with anybody it's fun to talk baseball this is a light-hearted episode I'm having a good time JD says the outfield is the one place I'm in control you know he he can choose when you're playing the outfield you could <laughs> you can ignore the cutoff man you got the shortstop the kid who thinks he's the hot shit on the field he's saying yeah cut off go to me I'll throw it in but you gas it over his head to the third baseman and they freaking swipe the runner out. You have some power when you have the ball. And there's a lot to learn about just like throwing the ball, obviously catching the ball, and the positioning in baseball. Everything is like triangulation. How far am I from this teammate and this teammate? And then where could I throw from there? Looks like I have a quote here at the end from his essay just to give him a little more airtime. J.D. Scrimmager said, A young boy's 
<laughs> okay, I'm trashing him. He, he wrote this in his essay. A young boy's erect penis is so insignificant on the high field. What are you bringing a, a penis into a baseball essay for? What, what are you doing? You could tell Mr. JD was wearing his cup. I never wore a cup at the start of baseball. I was like, why am I going to get hit in the scrotum? That's not going to happen to me ever until it happened to me. Took a fastball straight to the scrotum. I remember going down. Got to take my base. Wasn't able to run properly for a week. <laughs> Definitely wore my cup religiously after that. I got those cool slider shorts where the cup slid in. And then I learned to embrace it. You love the protection. I feel like I want to wear a cup now when I go around town. So that's where my power is when I wear a cup. <laughs> you get the point of his essay here. Something about chasing down a fly ball makes you feel like a boy. Or makes you be able to understand what a dog feels playing a good game of catch. Next up, we have Christopher Buckley. He's talking about the 1950s. Stepped on this a little bit before, but the main thing of his essay was baseball was able to bring the socioeconomic classes together. The baseball stadium was also the first to have e-box office tickets. So even um, like working class families, how were you going to get down to the box office to buy tickets during your entire 9 to 5? And then the box office is closed. Rich people, you send your assistant down there or you just mosey on down there when you don't have a meeting. When people were able to buy tickets online, it, they say it really changed the demographic of baseball too. If you want to be crass, they said it lost class. Like, more poor people are at the games. Christopher was writing about the beginning scene of Go Your Own Way. I've never seen that movie. Cannot comment on it, but it is apparently the perfect representation of pickup. Pick a baseball. <laughs> pick up women. That's the real game. When he was growing up, you could always tell what class, how well a kid's parents were doing by his baseball glove. In the 40s, it was those non-webbed gloves I was telling you about, the giant meat hand. And then in the 50s were when they had the department store standards and you knew what version each kid had. Christopher also bought up Sandlot. Can't skip over that movie, one of the great baseball classics. What's the, heroes might not live forever, but legends never die. <laughs> he apparently, Christopher Buckley, lost his dad's, his dad's glove, his Stefan Fatsis object of permanence and just like uh the sandlot he went on some crazy story to apparently get it back didn't care to share any details <laughs> he had a cool term for it um not a rolling guy but gloves back then were what economists would call durable goods so they were the ones that would last a lifetime not a lot made like that anymore maybe because we outsourced all our work to china for the model, for a while, Christopher had the best glove on the lot between all of his friends, and one day, a kid asked to borrow it. Very reluctantly, Chris let him, and of course, the kid did not return it, and he comes back the next week saying, Whoa, look guys, my dad just bought me the same model as Chris just had. It's probably his glove. <laughs> Baseball gives birth to thieves. I know you could tell which kids are going to grow up to be the kleptomaniacs by who's stealing your sunflower seeds. I remember coming back to this one kid. He would have purple bubbles coming out of his face. And I was like, hey, where'd you get the grape big league chew? I'm the only one on this team that chews it. I went to the uh, concession stand. You were just pitching the entire inning. There was this one kid in our town. He used to pretend to... We'll get there. This is a good teaser. 
Point there, Chris Buckley stole his glove back and his parents moved so he never had to confront the kid. Uh, He said after 1960, a lot of the glove manufacturing was sent over to Japan, Korea, and the Philippines. So again, he was talking about class there. Not to get political, but when we sent all the manufacturing overseas, that was like working class jobs. If your dad worked in the Rawling factory or the Wilson factory, you'd be like, (laughs) he gets me free gloves. We love baseball. This is our family tradition now. So that's definitely a big thing lost when all those jobs are lost too. But another universal theme, Buckley finds it nice to have a link to his youth playing some baseball and his glove lying around. Frank DeFord has an ode to the baseball cap. Baseball cap. What an article of clothing. Frank DeFord is a sports commentary uh, radio personality and writer. And he's known for going on NPR and making liberal cucks. NPR audiences who generally don't like sports tune in for the first time. He's probably one of the guys who was working out of, uh, who got National Stadium built. Oh my. God, man, you got to go. If you're a baseball junkie, check it out. They just built like a casino a couple miles away, too. They get festivals in the parking lots surrounding it. Great little ballpark village. Frank DeFord's point was baseball caps have transcended the game. They are a part of Americana. Just like blue jeans from the miners or like Coca-Cola from the Coke doctors, they've transcended their original meaning, and now it's just part of greater our culture you have tennis players started wearing baseball caps golfers the uh coaches in football you don't see other sports people adopting a hockey mask to wear around except for jason (laughs) nobody wears black eyeliner under their eyes as a fashion statement the baseball cap is a statement it's an icon it's a staple frank having lived through the rise of the baseball cap he said it dethroned the fedora we cannot think this hat style anymore it got the ladies the neck beards off the streets <laughs> the less fedoras in sight the better also it was the perfect design it has the hole in the back so women can wear them too you could put your hair in a ponytail and put it out the back i have a ponytail now too i'm rocking baseball caps all day while my hair is growing <laughs> It's like a universal symbol. If an alien came down tomorrow, we could throw a snapback on his big gushy gray dome. Stickers on, flat brim, a New York Yankees cap on this alien's head, and he'll be like, What's up, B? I'm loving the culture. Deadass, I'm gonna have to vaporize you. If I go to space tomorrow, I'll probably bring a baseball cap with me. It's gonna transcend Earth. It's a great piece of clothing that didn't exist until baseball nuts wouldn't you want to go back to medieval times and wear a baseball hat what is this sorcery upon your head (laughs) spaceball hat dude you like it keeps the sun out of your eyes frank deford ended saying the style of wearing the hat backwards came from the kids too it's a sign of youth you see an old man with his hat turned around it takes five years off it's like foundation for a woman and guys um, are always like concerned about their hair too so fucking it's a godsend for a ton of balding men that's an ode to the baseball cap. Next up is Caitlin Horrocks playing at the edge of the world. We got another female author. The first thing she decided to talk about was how much she loved the free things at baseball games. Don't know what you're getting for free. This might be a 
a sex issue like we started with the other one. Maybe, I think back in the day, like, they would used to just throw peanuts to people for free. I don't know what else is free to baseball stadium. A foul ball if you get lucky. Oh, I've been to more stadiums, I guess. I went to Coors Field a good amount of times here in Colorado. It is one of the most fun fields. It's literally named after the beer Coors. The Coors Brewery is 10 miles away in Golden, Colorado. I am sure they have an access pipeline that pipes fresh beer directly to the taps in the stadium. It is built to party. There is no right field. Go to Coors Field. It is entirely gutted out. No nosebleeds. The entire right field is a bar. They have like a Jack Daniels bar, a couple other trendier ones younger people are hanging out behind that. They got fire pits, those retractable curtains like your fucking DJ Khaled or at some Saudi Arabian prince's house. The new Coliseum, baby. These are... I can see why people would want to visit stadiums. Check out Coors Field if you're ever in Denver. It's right downtown, too. Like they said in the 60s, they moved everything downtown. This shit is smack dab in the middle of Lodo and Rhino. It is in the middle of Denver. They are building. They have two giant purple cranes up for the Rockies, an entire ballpark village, like thousands of thousands of units to nicely add to the Colorado traffic. Baseball ain't dying out in there. Caitlin, she grew up in Finland. They had some American influence. She's um grew up in like the 70s they had some baseball on tv or saw clips of it look at this wacky american sport but they would make up their own playground rules as everybody does she said they had this thing where like if you hit a triple it would count as a run but you get to stay on base that's a cool rule just because a triple is so rare that you get a score and you stay on interesting i fucking hated all those made up rules though growing up there was like Oh, if I throw to the second baseman, you're automatically out. That's technically a pickoff. It's like, I'm not going to lead if you don't have a catcher. Those were the worst kids, too, or halfway to the second base on a tiny field. It ruins the game. Baseball is made as a pretty perfect game. It's a statistician's favorite game. Go watch Moneyball. It's like a good algorithm of game to bet on, to see people's careers follow it along. Caitlin talked about the culture a little bit in finland they would see americans as warmongers i never really thought about it like (laughs) if your country every other country doesn't have football you look at americans playing football and are like you just smash your heads into each other what's the point of the game you're locked on a gridiron like a war it's a very warlike game and as the years went on caitlin they invented a game called persopolo which is an abridged version of American baseball. They claim to invent it. It's supposed to be quicker with less innings, but if you hit the ball over the fence, it's considered a foul. That's all I need to know to not want to play this. There is no home run. There is no big fireworks in the stadium. Everyone goes crazy. That's an American aspect to a sport. You need to have the super score. Remember slam ball? That's an American sport, baby. (laughs) Basketball on trampolines. Bring it back. And when Caitlin finally came to America, she realized the Swedish mitts were bigger and the Americans pitch a lot harder. She said the pitchers were more independent here. Like, um, as a Major League Baseball pitcher, you're supposed to rely on your fielders, like pitch to the certain batters so that you'll know they'll ground out. But as I did and as a lot of pitchers do, you want to be in full control. You want to look every batter in the eye and say non-verbally from 90 feet away, bitch, you ain't going to hit this sauce. 
in Finland, they were pitching Swedish meatballs. Hey! Baseball making its way up into the Arctic Circle. Next up, Sean Weilitz, Fred the Fan. He's doing a little fan service here. Baseball is one of those things that get more interesting when you know the history. Most things. Sean wrote about in the second baseball game ever, there were apparently people looking in the wrong direction and a lot of bar fights. It's always been the game to go to with the highest degree of freedom as a fan. That is an American sport. Pee at a trough and then accidentally turn two degrees to the right, hit a toddler in the face. Sean wrote about this guy, One-Eyed Freddy. He wouldn't miss a Yankee game. And um, eventually... When they built the new Yankee Stadium, they awarded him with um, season passes. So he made it from like 20 to death going to every single Yankee game. I was bought to Jets games as a kid from like my friend's dad. He would blaze up the car and we would get secondhand high and go see a Jets game after eating delicious meats. There was this guy, if you're a Jets fan, you know Fireman Ed. He goes clinically insane on the jumbotron this guy's going he's throwing his fucking shirt off like pushing the other fans around and pouring beer on his head that's fan service they give fucking fireman ed season passes creates a community more people like being around that another thing about fred cooler in his story was he lost his eye playing stickball why he loved baseball so much he stuck through everything he stuck through the dodgers he called them cocksuckers for going to la but he got to see the rise of the new york yankees and then live through their fucking dynasty fred the fan everybody is a fred the fan at some point in their life i had a signed jorge posada picture at my house he was the yankees catcher he, this guy was my fucking hero. I caught for a little bit on the little field. I remember being bored in class and reciting the fucking Yankees lineup in my head. Petted on the mound, pitching to Posada, Giambi at first, this fucking steroid ass. You got Cano on second, he'll swing at anything, Jeter at shortstop. Third base, you got the prodigy, Mr. Alex Rodriguez. High decky Matt Suey in left field. Johnny Damon eventually came to the Yankees. That was a little bit later. Who was there? Gary Sheffield. Ichiro Suzuki and right. See, I could fucking still do that off the top of my head. That is a waste of brain space. But that's fandom. It stays with you for life. Ching Ming Wong on the mound. I'm never going to forget that name. Hopefully, I'm definitely putting that in my prefrontal for the next time I'm on stage. Little crowd work. What do you do for work, sir? Are you an Asian food delivery driver? Okay, Ching Ming Wong, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Show's on the road. I was a fucking addict. But like he said in the beginning, our first author, Baker, baseball's an addiction. It comes and goes and ebbs and flows throughout the life, but it's also an addictive distraction, which is good. I was cutting it with Mario Baseball, going, making up my own lineups. Waluigi on first, who's on second, Jeter at short, Toadstool on third. <laughs> finished this chapter talking about there's a boston fan pete nash who's uh was the most notorious fan of all time and he was the first ever major league baseball fan hall of fame something for the fans to aim for even that's dope and fred has his lifelong tickets next up rick harsh umpiring this is one of the best parts of the games started talking about 
Don Deckinger, one of the legendary umpires who was one of the who was the last guy allowed to smoke on field and drink. If you were the first base coach, these guys used to have a highball, some whiskey or something chilling in their hand, and you could just rip bums next to the third baseman, give them a little lung cancer. <laughs> Play dirty. Joe Torrey, that was the GM of the Yankees when I was growing up. That guy smoked like a chimney in the enclosed dugout. I would be like, Coach, can we get a fucking ventilator down here? I'm about to go perform at a worldwide level. You see now, baseball has the instant replays. Baseball is one of the most straightforward and hardest sports to umpire and to call, but that also means it's the hardest to rig. I don't want to get into it, but you hear about NBA refs taking all kinds of bribes, dragging out last minutes of games, not fouling out LeBron. Just the next time you watch a Lakers game, watch the way every single referee treats LeBron. He could take four steps with the ball. He could punch people. (laughs) He could do whatever you want. Baseball, you got multiple umps. It's a little more fair. It's a fair game. Rick Harsh knowing, he's saying that as an umpire, you have to stand by your call more than being wrong or right matters. Especially before instant replay, you had the bar fighting crowd in the 20s, a very drunk audience who were very vocal about your calls. They would wait at your car after the game. You got to stand by your call more than anything. He said, probably for Don Deckinger in the early years, the (laughs) immense amounts of alcohol and nicotine probably helped with that. So it's good. I like the mix they have now. You can like go to the virtual call when you need to, but it's good to have the umpire out there. Where else in the world can you hear, He's out of here! Oh, yeah. Uh, fucking concession stand kid. He worked the concession stand and he would umpire some games. And while the parents were talking after the game, we were playing on the little hi- the hill by the field by the concession stand. And from behind it, thought we heard a ghost. In the distance, we heard, Strike! Ma! Ma! Strike out! He's out of here! And we would peek our heads around the corner, and this kid is practicing his calls. There is some showmanship that goes into umpiring. You gotta respect these guys. They lean into it. There's something about, like, training that annoying voice that's like, remember when people would neck you? Or if you say something stupid, they go, yeah, mad. That would always piss you off. What is worse than getting a backwards K, a looking strikeout called on you, and then hearing, it's fucking insult to injury. <laughs> As a batter, you want to tee off on the ump's head, but this is why you see every other time, the guy will shatter his bat over his knee. Frustrating. You got the different dynamics between all the refs, between the first base, like um, when they think it's either a ball or a strike, the umpire will point down the line to the first base ump and he'll he'll call the striker the ball. So you got a little fucking good cop, bad cop ump going. Fucking umpires, man. They wear like a black dress. They get to shout like they're the Phantom of the Opera. I pitched a sketch to my college radio station uh, TV station. I was trying to like break the wall, get involved with that. It was a bi-weekly show where they did like, uh, it would have been a bumper, just like a tiny bit in between segments. Could have been 30 seconds long. Would have cost zero dollars to shoot. And we had every single facility we needed to. Think about it. One of the funniest interactions in humanity. 
when there's a bad call and an umpire and a coach are in each other's face in any other sport, in a fucking hockey, you can pretend to punch the other guy and punch a referee in the face if you don't like him. Literally anywhere else in the world, in any other situation, these two men would be fighting each other. But instead, you get to see two grown men blowing bubblegum in each other's face, pointing fingers at each other. No, 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 he was safe. He was out. He was safe. And then the cherry on top, you kick the dirt onto each other's feet. That's almost as good as a bench-clearing brawl. My pitch, what was it? It was a progressive scenes. You start with like a hockey player and he gets a bad call and he takes pocket sand, just a bunch of sand out of nowhere, puts it on the ice and then starts kicking it on the ref. You go to an office worker who's throwing his baseball cap on the ground, stomping on it, going, what are you doing, boss? You can't call a meeting at 445 on a Friday. That's flagrant. Get him out of here. And then it winds up doing it in the dean's office. Something like that was the pitch. Got shot down. Never went to another pitch meeting. Started writing my own ideas. Now we got a little show here. This show is getting more views per month than the bi-weekly show ever did. Goes to show, don't fucking have an exclusionary tiny club. That's like the improv people and probably why I avoid it like the plague. Be interesting, not exclusive. <laughs> I started wearing around, be interesting, not exclusive, a long coat doing some sets around here in Denver. I have like a, cause I, I fucking love conspiracies. I'm in the heartland of the new world order here in Colorado. This coat character has been getting some more laughs than I have ever gotten as Nick Muniz <laughs> sucks. What a, a deep throat. I have some shady reporter names. Umpires. Um, what about a, a street justice umpire sketch? Like someone cuts in line, Guy pulls out a yellow card. Guy is hitting on a girl at the bar. He checks to the other umpire. Did he go? Did he break? This sketch, I'm telling you, it could have had seasons. It could have had spinoffs, baby. Point of Rick's little essay here was being an umpire is basically impossible. You're not superhuman. Nobody can track a 100 mile mile an hour ball. It's just experience. As many balls that you see coming in over the plate, you get a better feel for where your strike zone is. But every ump has a different strike zone. It's impossible to do it right. It is called one of the hardest positions in sports, too. Imagine trying to stay impartial during a pitcher's perfect game. Everybody in the stadium, even on the other team, is subconsciously rooting for the pitcher. Everybody wants to see a fucking perfect game. And you are on the field witnessing it. It's a hard job. Next, we have Matt Woods first base of last resort he was saying first base was known as a place for weak infielders and aging sluggers this is very true those of you not familiar with baseball first base you know you move the least but they now have like taller guys in there to be able to make stretch plays i was talking about jason giambi before this guy was a meatball they just throw him on first base but in uh the american league you have a dh position designated hitter so the pitchers don't have to hit and then you could throw a fucking big poppy in your lineup. Just an ogre who could swing his club and put every ball he makes contact with out of the stadium. That doesn't exist in the National League. They make the pitchers pitch, which is known as fans in the stadium as time to get a beer. Why are they doing this? It's hard. <laughs> Imagine how much your arm probably fucking already hurts. It's hard enough to throw a baseball. You're not going to simultaneously learn how to hit other pitchers' baseballs. Something cool about baseball they didn't really talk about in the book is all, like, the the stat girls. Love that part. The entire stat book is, like, another language. It's something you could 
be fluent in as well. Like, if you know all the numbers of the positions, how to call an error, and how all that goes down in the stat books, it lends itself for more people to be part of the sport (laughs) that don't need to, but that can now. But it's inclusive. There you go. It's a sport for everyone. Matt Wood was talking about how in the earlier days, pickoff plays, his thing was about first base, pickoff when you try to catch the guy taking a lead. You used to be allowed to hit the other players. So you're running back to any base. You could just fucking shoulder the guy's glove and hope the ball pops out. But then you got like the old uh, trick plays. So many fun. This is where the strategy comes in baseball. You call a fake huddle at the mound and then you give the pitcher the, uh, the dough ball, the the dirt thing to get his hand, the chalk. And then you give the first baseman the ball and he hides it and then just tags the runner out when you're flopping around with a chalk ball. When you're stealing bases, you got the runner sliding spikes up. That was all fair game. Pitchers used to put uh, pine tar on their hats. You know all the tricks. I didn't really get into the Pete Rose years to come. You could cheat in baseball as much as you want. I think baseball took a fucking hard downturn when they outlawed the catcher rule. This was like the last contact in baseball, like fucking impact plays where you could see guys get rocked. This was when, go look up a YouTube supercut and say goodbye to your afternoon. You got a 250-pound batter barreling around third base for a catcher who within a split second has to receive a ball coming in from 200 feet away and brace for impact, a full-speed shoulder coming in. I remember seeing uh, Posada getting ragdolled, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I got a fucking concussion one year. This was like my first year of baseball. I was a right fielder. Fucking, I I didn't understand sports yet, no coordination, and I literally just put my head down and fucking crunched my neck on this kid that was two years older. He snuck down into our league. (laughs) Nice little throwing up concussion couple nights for me. I could see why you might want to take that play out of Little League, (laughs) but that was the best part of baseball. Fucking Matt Wood, first base of the last resort. Next up, John Thorne, you gotta believe. John wrote a bestseller called The Hidden Game of Baseball. It was all about how it's just like chess with people. So he got into the whole game theory about it. Never played past Little League himself, but now always feels hypnotized when it's on TV. Asks himself what others think as they zone out too. He realizes that zone out weird conscious state it puts people in. It's like how when a dad watches golf, it's like a spell comes apart them. Neck cranks back and you hear on every block in the neighborhood baseball is this like in between state of consciousness rob john was writing about torn went to the mclean asylum and he was just doing some like psychiatric tests i don't know why he had to go to an asylum to do this but he found out the seven attributes of a fan of baseball apparently a lot of them have faith hope charity fortitude justice prudence and moderation don't see that commonality between every fan but we gotta trust the scientist he said people are always at different levels of these states as a fan of course people are always in some sort of state you fuck he did quote mark twain in the middle of it here the one that he chose to use in his chapter was always do right this will gratify some and astonish the rest chaboy picked up a was browsing the bookstore a three dollar mark twain book 
It's called The Wit and Witticisms of Mark Twain. It has all, it's like a compilation of this guy's truth bombs. It's fucking awesome. Got a couple to throw in here. The difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and lightning bug. (laughs) Not a bad one. We learned about precise speech a couple weeks ago. It's a fun little one-liner. What else does he have? Go to heaven for the climate and hell for the company. He came up with all these one-liners. They say Mark Twain was the first stand-up comedian. Last one. Always give your country patriotism, but your government only when it's deserved. Hmm. And witticisms. John Thorne ended his little blurb saying how there's massive amounts of military men that call into MLB radio shows on a weekly basis. It keeps our troops entertained, so Americana overseas as well. You Gotta Believe was the name of his chapter. It is the fans that keep the hype train alive. Sports are nothing without their most loyal fans. It's good they have that fan hall of fame. Same with this show, motherfucker. We're gonna have a Nick's Nonfiction Fan Hall of Fame. Yo! (laughs) He had his own witticism at the end, John Thorne. Sports have the ability for some to replace faith and then enhance faith in others. It's cool. It makes some people more superstitious and others believe in, um, lose their house to bets a fortune cookie told them to make. Next up, Warren Goldstein asterisk on the record. Baseball, that's where that phrase comes from. He's a history professor and writer. He was interested in Hank Aaron passing. And Barry Bonds, of course, the record holder. One of the first juicing scandals in all of sports. People have always been uh, interested in the history and the statistics of baseball never change. You have George Carlin talking about, go just watch his old pastoral baseball bit. It compares warlike football to passive baseball. Football is measured in downs. Baseball is measured in ups. It's crazy, though. What other sport is the offense not allowed to touch the ball? It's a very different game from most of the sports that we have. I've heard this one in open mics. Baseball is the only sport where the manager wears a kid's uniform. Can you imagine a fucking football coach, Bill Belichick, calling plays in full pads and a helmet? Go back to some uh, baseball versus football. In baseball, they don't play when it rains. It's a little wet out. Let's call it. That's the game. They have a little seventh inning stretch. But it's a timeless sport. Another thing that's different, only like cricket is the only other sport with no limit. It's peak escapism. You don't know when it's going to end. You're in the middle of it. It's like Dunces and Dragons. There was a, an American Dad episode. And they were bringing up the point how baseball is dying. You got to fucking change it up to get people interested. And the whole point was you turn it into Dunces and Dragons. And so go watch it. <laughs> Here's an asterisk on the record. He said in his essay, In 1850s, there was a Massachusetts game called Knickerbocker. And you had to hit a ball and then run around the position of a U-shape. So it was basically like baseball, except on a U instead of a diamond. Baseball, only sport played on a diamond. The asterisk on the record there, where it came from. Next up is Jeff Greenfield, the baseball pastoral. Baseball, this is pretty crazy. The MLB is in this weird limbo with the entertainment, with Rupert Murdoch. He owns every fucking TV channel. The MLB is on this weird contract where the major networks 
air and split the major advertisers fee whereas like the nfl and the super bowl the channels buy out the rights to the game and then sell the commercial slots so there's this weird thing going on where (laughs) you're gonna see a lot more fucking like go army commercials when you're watching a baseball game but this is how in the early days there was no commissioner of baseball billionaire in the beginning who would have been able to pay baseball onto the airwaves Ever since the start of TV, baseball was put and pumped into every American house with a TV set. All the CNN, ABC, CBS anchors back then had to adopt some crazy sayings and catchphrases to keep you there. That's where, go back and do the intro of the show again, all those crazy catchphrases the announcers have, it adds to the aesthetic of baseball. It's almost like a fucking religious ceremony. You got the preachers on Sunday public access. They do the national anthem. Seventh inning stretches. Everybody sings along to Sweet Caroline. But 30 years on the TV, 40-ish, 30 from 50s to the 80, baseball did good, and then it took a dip. For a while, the WWF was selling more than baseball. And then this was when the Yankees went on their tear. And anytime there's a winning streak... It could be any team. It brings people back to the sport. You got LeBron with the Cleveland Cavaliers, and now people are buying jerseys anywhere the guy goes. Greenfield let us know that baseball was never more profitable than the 2001 Yankees-Red Sox rivalry. Right when I was growing up, that rivalry flares up every here and there like a good case of Derek Jeter's herpes. We've got our final chapter, ladies and germs, Roger Angel on the ball. Our man Roger here has been writing for quite a while, started in 1962, and he is considered the best baseball writer of all time. He is a poet, and he has dabbled in fiction, and he went, he's a, like a detailed writer, better to read than to podcast about. He went into the dimensions of the ball and how it's this tiny little cork, smaller than a wine cork, wrapped in rubber, and then you got string around that with yarn around that, wool around that, and then a leather hide around it all, stitched up. That's a baseball. If you remember, anybody who's played has found a decaying ball in the outfield, taken it back to the dugout, and that's your entertainment for the rest of the game. These kids, oh my god, nowadays they're probably doing fucking Fortnite dances in the dugout. We, you had to entertain yourself. (laughs) You could unravel a ball all game, nine innings long. This thing, when you pull apart all that yarn and wool, it comes out to the, the, the circumference of the earth. You would not believe how much tether goes into a baseball. Roger wrote, all in admiration of the pitchers, how they are the ones who know the ball most intimately. Every time you pick up a ball, you are likely holding a different pitcher's grip. There's a bunch of ways you could snap your wrist as well the ball is a tool and you can make it move around many more ways than the layman can see bend it like beckham i cannot do that shit with a soccer ball pitchers also know how to use it as a weapon you could back someone off your plate you could clear both of the benches if you throw close enough to one of the other team's good batter's head some pitchers are precise enough where in the first couple pitches They'll pit, they'll, they can manipulate the batter's stance with where they're placing the ball. The first no-hitter was in the 1940s, and then that became the standard for an all-star. Does he have a no-hitter? The perfect game, though. I think there's still only like a dozen or something. That's That means no errors, nobody ever got on base. Your team was sleeping in the outfield. 
Roger ends us talking about the knuckleball. He described it as a non-symmetrical lateral force of distribution, a.k.a. magic. What the? That was word soup, bro. That's not a scientific definition of a knuckleball. Non-symmetrical lateral force of distribution. All right, Einstein, tell me how you have a ball act against gravity. Go, like, look up a knuckleball. I'm sorry if you don't have this personal experience of watching one come over the plate. It looks like it's in the quantum realm, bro. This pitch comes from another dimension. It can hover up and down and do little circles. I'm trying to show you with my hand right now. Waxing on, waxing off. That's what the pitch is doing. It is impossible to hit. Like a curveball drops, you would think a curveball curves, a slider slides from side to side, a curveball just drops off at the end somewhere in the strike zone, so it's never consistent. Not that hard to hit a fastball like we started, just get your timing down. A knuckleball, quit the game. There's a great baseball documentary on, uh, I think it might still be on Netflix, it's about the 100 mile per hour pitch, it goes all into ball grips, the history of pitchers, but... Every day, these guys are pushing baseball to a level we didn't know existed. You got CC Sabathia now pitching at 105 miles an hour. Roger Angel, best baseball writer, said, It is a game of strategy and trickery, repetition and unpredictability, ebbs and flows. I hope you guys have a dream about the dugout tonight and the boyhood giggles that you all shared, and hopefully we got to share today through the show. I hope I have filled you with a fair dose of nostalgia for the rest of the year. We will have another sports edition. I want to thank you guys all for tuning in. This was a nice, lighthearted episode for Nick's nonfiction. Appreciate it. Appreciate all of you anthologist writers. Next month, May 1st. May 1st last year, we had our first episode that broke 100 views. Yeah, we are on a different planet now, but we went with the topic close to my heart, America. We read Anatomy of the State this year. We got another dome buster, America, the farewell tour. That is right. We were just on tour the first of the month with Kiss, but we were going on a different type of tour this time, seeing America through the lens of corruption. You know, what rock and roll was trying to knock down. This was the first book by one of the best authors I've ever read. Chris Hedges, ladies and gentlemen. I would suggest any of his works off the bat, off of this one read. He's an activist and a journalist. The Farewell Tour acknowledges a fact of history, common theme of the show, repeating scripts. Chris knows every empire that has ever existed reaches an end. He picks seven aspects that are flourishing in the American culture, chapter by chapter, and shows how we are mirroring the fall of the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire before that, the Huan dynasty in China, the longest Chinese dynasty, we are doing the same exact things to ruin ourselves. In this fast food global culture that we have, the empires come and go just as quick. Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize winner, and if he's not, he's about to get the Seth Rich Award. This book took several months to come in the mail. It was like hidden on Amazon. This is what they would consider a burned book. It is going to be a, another controversial but truly enlightening show about our country in an election year. Seriously, it's going to be a really fun topic. We got knowledge bombs all day and a Chris Hedges classic. Thanks for having a catch with me. 
I'm Nick Muniz, and I will see you in just a couple weeks. Or as Michael K. would say, there it goes. See ya!